Well, we are in the midst of a series on discipleship, and we're focusing on Jesus' teaching in his farewell address to his disciples in John chapters 13 through 17. And this week we come to a bit more of his teaching on the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his people. And previously in chapter 14, uh, Jesus taught a big chunk uh, on the Spirit. And here in 15 and 16, he speaks even more about the Spirit's work and role in his people's life. So we are in chapter 15. We're going to take it up with verse 2016 and go into chapter 16 as well. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare to you, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that the Spirit would be in and amongst us, with us, Lord, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would see Jesus, just as Jesus teaches it here, that we would be uh, more enamored by the truth of him, that we would want to walk in his ways, that we would want to grow deeper with you, O oh Father. So we pray for this time together, this meditation on your word leading into the Lord's Supper, that this would be a means of grace to us to build us up in faith, hope, and love. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name, through the power of the Spirit. Amen. Gerald Borchardt, in his commentary on John's Gospel, uh, which has been incredibly helpful for me in this sermon series, he, he breaks this section of Jesus' teaching down into three parts that I think very helpful for working through what Jesus teaches here. So I'm just going to use that his, his breakdown for my own sermon. And he, he breaks it down essentially this way. First, the spirit as witness in persecution. And then second, the spirit as counselor, comforter, and judge. And then finally, the spirit as authentic guide. So let's start with that, that first section there, the spirit as witness in persecution. Well, if you think back to last week and what Jesus taught, that if the world hated him, 
it would hate his disciples too. That is, you know, if, if you belong to Christ and are walking in his ways, you should expect some form of resistance, if not persecution, to happen to you at some point in your life. It may not be constant. I mean, the disciples were not constantly persecuted or resisted, and neither was Jesus. But still, there will be moments, and these moments may at times be severe. It might be more, as we talked again last week about some of the low-key persecution, like how some churches and pastors treat Presbyterians in this town with disdain or refuse to acknowledge that we are Christians at all, or how some Korean Christians in our denomination, and they brought this up at at General Assembly this year, how they have been threatened uh, over the last couple of years in this country. Or it very well may be the full-blown persecution like Jesus endured or like we see uh, in the book of Acts. And many Christians worldwide face that right now. And as I said last week, what we deal with more often than not, and I mean us in this room, in, in our circles, it is not the outward hammer of persecution, though I do think that is probably headed our way in some form. It's the inward enticement to sin, to choose to trust or pursue something or someone other than God. Well, Jesus begins in verse 26 by reiterating that the Spirit is the Spirit of truth who proceeds uh, from the Father and who bears witness about Jesus. Now remember that that famous phrase, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the Spirit of truth proceeding from the Father bears witness to and about Jesus. As we said several weeks ago, just riffing off of Martin Luther, the Spirit only talks about Jesus, and without the Spirit, none of us would believe nor nor follow him. So the Spirit testifies to, to God's people about Jesus, and they in turn testify about Jesus to the world. So the Spirit's work and our work go hand in hand. So don't see what Jesus is teaching here as a personal word from God to an individual. This is the Spirit's word about Jesus that leads to mission. The people of God, as as Jesus talks about them in chapter 15, verse 16, are set apart for the privilege of being gifts to the life of the world. This has always been the people of God's calling and their purpose. And what Jesus teaches in our passage, and really the whole of 13 through 17, is no different than, say, Abraham's calling. He was set apart for the purpose of mission, for the purpose of blessing the world, and so is God's people. So we don't have the privilege of being God's people simply to be God's people. Election is predicated on mission. And that was the mistake, for example, that Jonah made in refusing to go to Nineveh. You see, as an Israelite, he did not want to see God's grace and mercy extend to people outside of Israel, especially people like the Assyrians. No, like Abraham, we exist. We have been set apart for the purpose of being a blessing to the world. So the Spirit then, as Jesus teaches it here, is at work in our lives testifying to the reality of Jesus and works in tandem with his people that we might bear witness about Jesus too. So if you consider, for example, how Pentecost worked, the pouring out of the Spirit onto the disciples 
led them to preach about Jesus almost immediately. And in turn, thousands of people came to Christ. Now, previous to the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost, the disciples were at times boastful and fearful and faithless, or as Jesus called them, they had little faith. Despite you know, having walked with Jesus in the flesh for three years, and after the giving of the Spirit, they are emboldened and they are strengthened in just the ways Christ wanted for them, in really just the ways he's talking about here. Why? Because Christ was now in them, indwelling them through the work of the Spirit. Now, that did not mean that they, they didn't sin anymore or didn't make serious mistakes. They clearly did. Just go read the book of Acts and how Paul confronted Peter, for example, over some of the things he was doing. But with the gift of the Spirit, they were changed men, and it resulted in, in lives lived both in word and deed in testimony to Jesus. Now, just as a, a quick aside, a familiar complaint from Christians is that uh, we don't feel the work of the Spirit in us, and we, we certainly uh, don't uh, have experiences like we see at Pentecost, for example. And the question comes, you know, if the Spirit of God is in us, shouldn't we feel it? Shouldn't we feel it? Well, maybe, but maybe not. So, for example, I can tell you last Sunday, I certainly felt the Spirit at work in me and in this congregation, but I don't always feel that way. In fact, I would say more often than not, I don't. And, and with the disciples, they experienced Pentecost once. And it was a, a unique, unrepeatable experience. In fact, there are other movements of the Spirit in the book of Acts in which he is poured out on people, and it does not respond like they do at Pentecost. doesn't look like that at all, yet he was poured out. But it is certainly true that, it, that if you, know, you are not making use, at the very least, of the means which Jesus has given to his people to commune with him, so just think things like his word or the sacraments of prayer or fellowship or gathered worship, even though God has made his home in you, he will feel distant from you because you are not pursuing him. And even then, you shouldn't expect the experiences of God to necessarily be ecstatic. Is it possible? Sure. I've had some real mountaintop top moments in my life, but they're not the norm. It would be like, for example, complaining that your spouse feels very distant to you when you have refused to be around him or talk to him, or engage him in any meaningful way. It's not your spouse's fault that he feels distant from you. It's yours. It's yours. You know, as much as Christ is at work in you through the Spirit, and no matter how we feel about that, he is at work, that's his promise, we do have the responsibility to engage with him too. That said, Jesus tells his disciples again that persecution is coming. And he is warning them again so that they won't be taken by surprise by it or fall away because of it. And though many Christians in our own times are surprised by it, we should not be. We should not be surprised when bad things happen to us. We don't believe in the prosperity gospel. We believe that because of our union with Christ, that though we suffer and die, and if you think about it, in, in in a sense, every life ends badly because we all die. Even so, we have nothing to lose and have already gained everything because we have God. 
Even so, as he says in in chapter 16, verses 2 and 3, his disciples would be run out of synagogues and even killed because of Jesus. And the people persecuting them would think they were actually righteously pursuing God. And if you've read the book of Acts, then you know exactly how this played out. Among other things, Jesus was anticipating Paul's persecution of the church. So the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, think about this now. This was not the work of a pagan mob, like, like what Paul would face in his, some of his missionary journeys. It was the work of serious-minded Jews who thought they were zealously protecting Israel from people who threatened her. That's how they treated Jesus too. It does not matter, you know, your ethnicity or your nationality or how well-versed you may be in the Bible or other religions or science or what have you. You If a person rejects Jesus, they have no part in God. That's what Jesus teaches. No matter, you know, how they might pray or worship or how good they might be. And as we talked about with 1 Peter last week, you know, it's one thing when Christians get hammered for behaving badly. That, that's not persecution. That's, well, that's reaping what you sow. If we act like jerks, we shouldn't cry foul when we are called out on it or as we're treated as jerks. It's quite another to speak the truth in love, testifying to the reality of Christ both by what we say and, and what we do. And when we get hammered for that, That's what it means to take up a cross and follow Jesus. And Jesus all but guarantees that that if we take him seriously, to some extent, that will happen to us. Now, maybe not on a literal cross, but we will be attacked in some way for our allegiance to Christ. Well, this takes us to the next section, the spirit as as counselor and comforter and and judge. In verse 4, Jesus tells his disciples, He didn't teach them these things earlier. That is what he's teaching right now. He didn't teach them these things earlier because he was with them. So they they could see, think about this now, they could see and immediately feel his presence, like how they reclined with him at table as he's teaching them this stuff. But now that he was leaving them, they rightly felt sorrow, if not more than a little bit fearful at his leaving them. He then says these these very strange words in 16.7. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So how can it be the case that it would be better, it would be better for the disciples, for Jesus to leave and the Spirit to be poured out? Well, think back to what Jesus taught in chapter 14. By the pouring out of the Spirit, the disciples, and this by implication is us too, they will actually still have Jesus, but he will be a deeper reality to them. God the Father, through Jesus and the power of the Spirit, will make his home, literally make his home in his people. It's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, in his arguments against uh, sexual immorality, calls us temples of the Holy Spirit. That's not figurative language. That's not some spiritual metaphor. Paul actually means it because of Jesus' teaching right here. And it's hard to imagine that Jesus could be even closer to his disciples than he was sitting right in front of them, but that's what he's telling them. So think of it this way. 
Jesus is closer to you now than he was to his disciples as he sat right in front of them teaching this to them. So what he's teaching them is is traditionally known as union with Christ. And we are going to be talking about this crucial doctrine for the next couple of weeks in our evening service. It is so important and it is so often missed by Christians in our country. And essentially it means this, through the work of the Spirit, you are literally in union, in your person, mind, heart, and body with the Lord Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, this is actually the central defining aspect of a Christian's identity. At the core of you is Jesus Christ, and in turn, you are in him. This should actually comfort you because no matter how alone you may feel, no matter what your sin may be, no matter what you are struggling with, you are not alone as God is with you and he is in you. And this is such a huge, mysterious teaching that I'm at a loss of words to convey just how important it is. In fact, I I don't think I've even broken the surface in my own life of really comprehending all that this entails and what it means. No matter what you're facing then, even death itself, Your God is with you and in you, and he will not let you go. And again, the temptation we daily face, and sometimes this is moment by moment. It's to reject that this is actually the case, that this is actually true. And it may be, ah, I just don't feel this way. Drop your feelings. This is what he has promised to you. We are enticed so often to believe some other thing, some other God, some other pleasure, some other person, is closer to us or more relevant to us or better for us or more comforting to us or understands us better than God himself. And it's a lie. It's why when we're we're tired or angry or sad or apathetic or struggling with sin or, or some shame, it's so tempting to reject gathered worship as actually being good for Right there, it seems like that's the last place we should be. That's a lie. It's exactly where you should be. So for God's people, the spirit, you see, is is the great comforter, the great counselor. But to the world, he is a judge. Verse eight envisions a courtroom setting in which the spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So in terms of sin... The Spirit convicts because the world does not believe in Jesus. So it's not just that the Spirit brings to light individual sins here and there. It's rather that he brings to light how the world has trusted in something other than Jesus and in turn rejected him. In terms of righteousness, the Spirit convicts the world by the standard of God's righteousness, which is embodied in Jesus himself. It's like what John says in 1 John, that everyone who does right, that is, they they act righteously, as in you do right by God and do right by neighbor, those people are from God, and those who do not do right are, are like Cain, the murderer, and are from the devil. So no matter how good a person may be, a person is either in Jesus or in Adam. 
And if that person is not in Jesus, their part is actually with the devil, whether they recognize it or not. And their lives more accurately reflect that of Cain. See, Jesus is the living embodiment of God's law. He is the perfectly righteous human. And by his righteousness, we are either saved or judged. Let me say that again. You are either saved by Jesus' righteousness or you are condemned by it. There is no middle ground. So the world's rejoicing over Jesus' death as embodied at that time by the Jewish leadership and the Roman soldiers who carried out the crucifixion, well, it turned out to be the rejoicing of the damned, though, of course, they did not realize that at the time. So when our enemies rejoice over how stupid they think we look, how backwards we are in our thinking, how hopelessly outdated we are, or how irrational we seem to them, or how much we are not on the the supposed right side of history, we should not be angry about that. I don't think we should be seeking to get even with them or to show them just how wrong they are. No, we should actually pity them because they are rejoicing in their self-chosen damnation. And as Jesus teaches, the Spirit does not judge the world only. He declares the condemnation of the ruler of this world too. That is Satan himself. So we we cannot be so short-sighted as to see our lives merely in local terms. Though, of course, we are locals and we should be. We are part of a much greater conflict, one that has defined world history. And in turn, we should live knowing that the outcome of that battle has already been won. We know what is coming. So as much as your, your individual life matters, and it absolutely does, Like a soldier hitting the beach at Normandy Beach on the D-Day invasion, we are willing to lose ourselves. We are willing to lose our individuality for the sake of God's greater purposes. So we no longer are for ourselves alone. That's how the world lives. The world lives for self. No, we live for the sake of God and our neighbors. Okay, so to this point, we've, we've seen the Spirit's role is to witness to the reality of Jesus as Lord, both in the disciples' lives, but in tandem with the disciples as they bear witness to Jesus too, in particular in the midst of persecution. The Spirit also indwells God's people, comforting them, counseling them by, by uniting them to Christ, growing us deeper with Him, even as the Spirit also convicts the world and its prince, Satan. But he's also a guide, a guide to his people. The temptation for Christians living, though, in a a highly individualized culture to which it's just me and everything revolves around me is to read passages like this as the Spirit, say, revealing special words or insights to his people that others are not privy to. So when someone, for example, has a special reading of Scripture or a new understanding that the rest of the church does not have and it's, it's not showing up in the previous 2,000 years of history, chances are pretty good that's not from the Holy Spirit. Maybe from a spirit, but not the Holy Spirit. And we especially interpret this 
passages like this one in terms of our, our personal circumstances and the questions that arise from them, as in questions like, well, what's the right thing to do? Should I, I marry this person? Is this the right job for me? Now, are these important questions? Absolutely they are. Have I ever had a special word from God in any of those kinds of questions? Never. Never. So I can't, for example, really explain how I, I came to be your pastor in any charismatic sense. I, I, I never heard a word from God telling me to go to seminary in 1998 let alone seminary in St. Louis. I never heard a word from God telling me, that's the girl, go marry her. Never heard a word from God about pursuing an additional master's degree or a PhD, never. And when things fell apart at my previous church and I was looking for a different position, when I saw this church listed on like the, the job listing board, there was no light from heaven or choir singing in the background as I read Greenville, Alabama. No, it was just a job. You know, at the same time, I, I was actually really pursuing more academic type jobs. And to be perfectly honest, I had forgotten that I had sent in a resume to this job until Calvin Poole called me one Saturday morning in May of 2013. And even then that phone call broke up three different times because my cell service was awful where I lived in St. Louis. and I wound up practically being in the attic. At the time of his call, I was actually the finalist for a position at Covenant College in my hometown of Chattanooga that seemed like that job was tailor-made for me. And everyone I knew, including faculty at the college, thought I was going to get that job. And how could I not? It would hit every single vocational desire I had at the time. Plus, it would put us in the same town with our family, something we had never had in our marriage. And I... I'll be honest, I have never wanted a job so badly in my life, and I was certain I was going to have it. Well, I didn't, and, and <laughs> Calvin called. I even had misgivings driving down Interstate 59, because if you've ever driven down 59, and I have many times, it's not that good of a highway. Driving from Chattanooga, especially as I was now at the point officially fired from the job I already had. And I remember driving around this church building for the first time. Do you remember what this church building looked like in 2013? It looked like a picture from a war zone, right? This entire aspect was just like bricks piled up and there was like plastic hanging. And I remember thinking, oh my Lord, what is this? And even when I got the job, and went through Presbytery and miraculously sold our house in record time and a thousand other details I won't tell you, I never heard a single word from God. Not one. It's as we look back at that time that we clearly see God at work in our lives and, and guiding us. But in the moment, a few things were very clear to us. Even so, even as I recount all of what I just said, that's not what this passage is about. It's what we want it to be about, but it's not. No, the Spirit guides his people in the truth. That's what Jesus says, that he directs us back to Jesus over and over again. Just as Jesus glorified the Father, so the Spirit glorifies the Son and leads us back to Adam's original calling 
to glorify the triune God in our worship and our work and relationship. So you know, taken together, all of what he has said here together, the Spirit is a witness in persecution. To what? To Jesus. He comforts his people and he judges the world. On what basis? Again, Jesus. And he guides his people time and again back to what? Jesus, so that we might glorify the triune God of Father, Son, and Spirit. So, okay, think again to the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 to see how this actually works. Stephen had been doing great signs and wonders among the Jewish people in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 6, says he was filled with the Spirit. Now, while some believed in Jesus because of Stephen's works that he was doing, others opposed him. And he was hauled into court and forced to answer why he was doing what he was doing and saying what he was saying. And everything he was doing, of course, was centered on Jesus. His defense is a speech that follows the history of Israel's rejection of God, which leads him to calling out the Jewish leadership specifically for rejecting Jesus. And instead of convicting them to repentance, like Peter's speech at Pentecost, that led to thousands of Jewish people turning to Jesus. Now, this time it enrages them. At the very same moment as this is happening, he looks and through the Spirit, like Isaiah, he sees the throne room of God opened up and he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God interceding for him. And he tells the court about it in just that moment. This enrages them even further and they killed him for it. And what followed immediately after this was persecution. It was the persecution of the Jerusalem church at the hands of Paul, which led to even more growth of the church. And by the way, though nobody wants it, persecution usually has this effect. It both winnows down the church because it eliminates casual faith sort of people, but it also grows the church with new believers who see the truth of Christ through the persecution of his people. They see it and they marvel over it. So what we see with Stephen encompasses actually everything Jesus taught in our passage. His disciples would be confirmed by the witness and testimony of the Spirit in their own lives. I mean, why else would they continue to follow Jesus and preach about him? And they, in turn would bear witness about Jesus and would sometimes win people to him, but other times they would be persecuted. In the midst of that persecution, though it appears to the world that Stephen is alone, he's not. No, the Spirit shows him in that critical moment that Jesus was not just ruling over all things, he's interceding for Stephen at the right hand of God, and it's a comfort to him. And because Stephen, guided by the Spirit, speaks the truth in love to his accusers and in turn tells them about what he is witnessing in that moment, they not only reject his testimony, they are condemned by it and moved to kill him because of it. It's why when Paul encounters Jesus on the Damascus Road, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identifies with his people. He's in such deep communion with us through his spirit that when we are attacked, he is too. It's why we must never treat other Christians as if they are not beloved by God. 
and indwelled by the same spirit as we are, of course there's gonna be disagreements. Of course we're gonna hurt each other. That's the nature of being sinful creatures still. But we dare not treat the other people as if they are not beloved by the same God, and we are. It's why loving your neighbor, for example, begins in God's house. That's why we have the passing of the peace every single week. So let's ask the question, does this sort of thing like we see with Stephen still happen? Granted, it's pretty extraordinary, but does it still happen? Well, yes, I, I think so. But all three things that we've, we've been talking about here, they don't necessarily have to happen at once, like what we see happening with Stephen. So let's take last week's sermon as an example. Last week at Presbyterian Clan, I was, I was really moved, really impacted by Claude McRoberts' sermon. He's, if you don't know Claude, he's awesome. I love Claude. He is the senior pastor at Trinity in Montgomery, and he was preaching from the heart, I mean, pretty vulnerable to a room full of pastors. And he was recounting some of his hardest moments in ministry, and, in, and I couldn't believe some of them. And, and in particular, the time when it became clear to him that his demeanor in the pulpit did not always match with the content of what he was saying. So he might be saying, for example, I love you, but his people maybe didn't believe him because the way he was saying or his body language, whatever, didn't line up with, with the content. And so, you know, he prayed, he learned to pray that his demeanor would match his heart. Well, knowing what I was getting ready to preach Last Sunday, I prayed on the way to church that my demeanor would match with the content of what I was preaching and that you would be able to see that, that what I was saying wasn't coming from a position of self-righteousness or hatred or wanting to beat you down or whatever, but, but out of genuine concern and love for you. And then I promptly forgot that I prayed that. I can even tell you where on the road I was where I prayed that. And in the moment where I came to the hardest part of that sermon, I got choked up. And here's the thing. The second before that, I wasn't feeling emotional at all. And even as it happened, I was thinking, oh, no, what on earth is happening? Stop it. In fact, I started getting mad at myself for getting choked up. Here's the thing. I do not try ever to use emotion to persuade you. So I don't yell. I don't cry. I certainly don't try to manufacture dramatic moments to bring you in. I, I will say as a younger pastor, and I, this was early here too, I would go looking for that, that illustration, that one story that's just gonna just bring it right in, you know, that twist that you're gonna go, oh. I used to look for that and, and thank God he's worked on me that I don't go looking for that anymore because I really want the spirit working through the text to move you, not me and whatever dramatic persona I might bring before you. But I think he answered my prayer last week in a way that I was not expecting, and, and my normally pretty fairly calm, bland demeanor was changed in a way that I could not have anticipated, and it's not what I actually wanted. I believe the Spirit was at work, and some of you felt it. And you saw it, and you know what? You said as much. But you have to ask the question, to what end? To what end? Was it merely so that we could feel something? 
or have an experience? Man, I hope not. I hope the Spirit was leading us to a deeper walk with God through His Son, Jesus. And that's my prayer for every single sermon. And every time I stand to teach, every time, every time I stand to pray or whatever it is, that's my hope. But I want you to notice that this this does not work. This does not work. And this is how we typically approach these things. This does not work when you're living your life as a radical individualist. Can the Spirit move in you while you are alone? Of course, of course he can. But consider that Stephen was under the regular teaching of the apostles. He was an active member of the congregation in Jerusalem. He made use of the means of grace, and as a result, God made use of him in just the ways we hear Jesus describing. And as he preached that sermon, knowing that he was most likely going to either take a beating or die, or maybe both, he spoke the truth in love. And it was pointed and honest, but it was spoken with the hope that his enemies would turn. You don't come to that position by yourself. No, by yourself, you come to look like what the internet does for a lot of Christians. You know, none of that happened because Stephen was growing in Christ by, all by himself. No, he grew bold in the spirit within the body of Christ, which led him to be a gift for the life of the world. And that's, that's entirely my hope for us. You know, if we ever grow numerically and just start being huge, great. You know, what a blessing that would be. But I'm much more interested in us growing deeper with our God. I mean, that, that's the whole point for this sermon series. It's why I quit with Exodus for a time. And we'll take it up later, but this just seems like such a concern to me right now. So let me, you know, encourage you. I, I'm so much more interested in us growing into maturity and to the, the sort of people who died to self and lived to Christ and neighbor, because I think our nation needs that. I think we need that. You know, so let me encourage you, though it may not feel like it at the time, though sometimes, of course, you will feel it, Make use of the means of grace that God has generously given to his people. Things like prayer or learning the word together or sitting under preaching and teaching or worshiping together or partaking the sacrament together, confessing together, proclaiming together. You're getting ready to take the Lord's Supper. When you take the sacrament, don't be praying, Lord, may I feel it. Because we'll get into a situation, let's just be honest, we'll get in a situation where Maybe we think we need to feel contrite. Like we need to feel sorry for our sins as we do the confession of sin or as we are partaking of you know, the body and the blood that we need to feel a certain level of, of melancholy perhaps. I'm gonna tell you right now, you cannot manufacture those feelings and then be real. What you should rather be preaching or, or, or praying in that moment is Lord, will you take these simple elements? And you're gonna hear me pray this. Will you take these simple elements of bread and wine or grape juice? And though I don't understand how, will you take them and work in this moment in my life and shape me to yourself? Will you show me my sin in a way that maybe I haven't seen it? Will you work in me in such a way that I want to pursue you more? And Lord, I am content that I won't feel anything right now. 
but I will be content that you are at work and that you are working me in such a way that I will respond to what you're working in me now. Pray that. You know, all kinds of gratitude, whatever it may be, as you take the bread and the wine, because he's given everything for you. And pray for the movement towards maturity. Pray for the movement to fight against whatever sin you're struggling with right now. Pray for the courage to say, I'm sorry. All those things are fair game, but I want you to notice you may not feel anything in the moment. This may rather be something that you're praying for the future that I I want to be this kind of person because you are good, oh God, and I want to be shaped to your ways. Well, that said, let's get on to the sacrament. Let me pray for us, and we will partake. Heavenly Father, you are so good. You're so kind. You're so patient. You are so loving. You work in us in ways that we often cannot see or feel or comprehend. But if we look back over the course of our life, Lord, we can see your faithfulness. We can see how you have guided us to be just in the moments that we are right now. We can see how you have instilled in us and confirmed in us the truth of your gospel. And Lord, I know not everyone is there right now. I know some are doubting, some are in pain, some are struggling with all different kinds of things. I know for some of us, we're distant from you because we have purposely walked away. Lord, I pray, continue to work. May your gospel continue to shine in us. May we turn back because you are so faithful and so good. I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.